Welcome to the Air Medical Today podcast. My name is Edward Ero, and I am your host for Episode 7 on February 5th, 2010. This podcast is part of the Eero Podcast Network, podcasts that inform by focusing on both the news and the people behind the news. Air Medical Today is published throughout the year, and with each episode, we explore news and information, government and policy decisions, historical events, and a specific area of the air medical industry and community through the use of interviews. You can find Air Medical Today on the web at airmedtoday.com and on Facebook and Twitter. The podcast is also indexed on iTunes under Air Medical Today. For additional information about the guests on the podcast, I also provide background data on my blog at blog.ero.com. Remember, if you would like to become a sponsor and or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 206-350-0278. Today's guests are Tom Judge, Jason Swiebeck, Lisa Tofil, the President, Vice President, and Executive Director of the new Association of Critical Care Transport, formerly known as the Patient First Air Ambulance Alliance. Before I introduce my guests, I want to go over some feedback from Episode 6 and cover some recent air medical transport news. I did not hear any feedback from Episode 6, but remember, I do want to hear from you, so call the Air Medical Today phone line or send an audio file to the email address to provide feedback, ask questions, or if you have suggestions for future guests, I will be putting selected voice messages on the podcast itself. As mentioned in previous episodes, I continue to try and locate all Air Medical and Critical Care Transport fan pages on Facebook. If your program or service is not shown in the Favorites Pages tab in the left-hand column on the Air Medical Today Facebook page, please either leave a message on the page itself or send your page's link to me via email at webmaster at airmedicaltoday.com. I would like to be the directory for all Facebook pages so that any program can find and easily fan fellow air medical and critical care transport providers. Let's talk about some recent news affecting the air medical world. News out of Haiti has slowed, but still is very grim with the death count and the burial ground, or really lack of burial grounds, and also the child adoption stories. After I had finished episode 6 of the podcast, stories surfaced on the United States military temporarily suspending medical evacuation flights from Haiti to the U.S. because states have raised questions about the cost of care and that they were unwilling to approve any more patients. The flights were halted a day after Florida Governor Charlie Crist asked the Department of Health and Human Services to help the state defray the costs on January 26th. In a letter to the Health and Human Services Secretary, Kathleen Sebelius, the governor said that Florida's health care system is quickly reaching saturation, especially in the area of high-level trauma care. 
The letter stated that nearly 500 Haitian earthquake victims already were being treated in Florida hospitals. Christ also asked Sibelius to activate the National Disaster Medical System, which is typically used in domestic disasters and pays for victims' care, and that his state remains committed to caring for injured earthquake victims and reuniting families, though he was reaching out to other states to help care for them as well. Flights resumed this past Sunday based on identifying locations both inside and outside of the United States so as not to overwhelm the capacity of any one state. I continue to see stories of individuals from our air medical community that are physicians, nurses, or paramedics that are serving in Haiti but not part of an air medical team, so I want to provide a thanks to them and all volunteers that have given their time and talent to the earthquake victims. One story of note was passed on to me by Rex Alexander of OmniFlight that showed Dr. Bill Rutherford working in Haiti from a blog posting. That story is linked in the show notes. If you know of others, please email me at webmaster at airmedtoday.com. There has not been much news about health care reform this past week, except for President Obama speaking at a House Republicans meeting and a town hall-type webinar published by the Democratic uh, National Party. East Care at Pitt County Memorial Hospital in Greenville, North Carolina, received a new EC-135 helicopter from American Eurocopter as part of its first step of fleet upgrade. East Care has operated Eurocopter helicopters since the mid-1980s and will base the new EC-135 at the Rocky Mount Wilson Regional Airport. In April and May, two EC-145s will be delivered and located at Pitt County Memorial Hospital. All the new helicopters will be purchased and will replace three Eurocopter BK-117s that currently are operated on a lease arrangement through Air Methods, their air operator. Flight for Life from Trinity Mother Francis Hospital in Tyler, Texas, also unveiled a $7 million American Eurocopter EC-145 helicopter this week, which replaces their American Eurocopter BK-117. The Flight for Life crew is scheduled to visit several locations in the region during February to give physicians, clinical personnel, and the public the opportunity to see the helicopter. The program was launched in 1985 and is based in Tyler, serving a 150-mile radius covering 32 counties. Flight for Life averages 600 to 700 flights each year. Air Methods Corporation recently signed an agreement with Aero Simulators to purchase three advanced aviation training devices, which will be incorporated into the company's pilot training program. The main device is a replica of a Eurocopter EC-135 helicopter with an Air Methods-specific cockpit, and it will be permanently located at their corporate headquarters in Inglewood, Colorado. The other two devices are replicas of the Eurocopter AS-350 helicopter, and they will be mobile, allowing the company to move them throughout their operating sites. The simulators will allow instructors to practice emergency procedures which are not well suited to attempt in actual flight. The company's fleet of owned, leased, or maintained aircraft includes over 300 helicopters and fixed-wing aircraft. 
ARINC Incorporated has completed a major enhancement of the nine-state flight operations radio network of PHI Air Medical Group through the deployment of new digital command consoles and custom software at four PHI Air Medical Communications Centers. This includes their headquarters in Phoenix, Arizona, as well as three regional centers in Virginia, Kentucky, and Indiana. ARINC also installed new digital network hardware at 53 new and existing PHI air ground radio sites to expand and enhance the network's national radio coverage. The new digital technology includes cutting-edge ROIP, or radio over IP, capability that overcomes many of the limitations of analog voice networks by adding powerful, flexible message handling. Each center and its pilot staff emergency operations command desk can now communicate with PHI helicopter flight crews via any of the radio towers on the network. In addition, all centers can now communicate easily with one another, including the assumption of one another's responsibilities for local radio or phone traffic for redundancy purposes. ARINC Incorporated provides communications, engineering, and integration solutions for commercial, defense, and government customers from their headquarters in Annapolis, Maryland. They also have regional offices in London and Singapore. In September 2009, the Native Air Program, serving Arizona, announced its flight for the CAUSE fundraising program to benefit the Gracie Lee Haught Children's Memorial Fund. Under the program, Native Air pledged to donate $10 for every air medical transport it completed throughout Arizona during the months of October through December of 2009. During that time, Native Air raised $15,000 for the organization, which was created following a tragic accident in 2004, which took the life of three-and-a-half-year-old Gracie Lee Hott. The fund provides financial and emotional support to families suffering from the fallout of tragic accidents and unexpected emergencies. Joel Hockholder, Vice President of Business Operations for OmniFlight Native Air, presented the check on February 2nd. The FAA's fiscal 2011 budget, which was released this week, had no reference to funding the aviation system through user fees. This was a notable admission as the FY 2010 budget released last year included footnotes referring to a new user fee approach. The Transportation Department never followed up with a detailed proposal in the current budget year, but the footnotes alone were enough to spark protests from user fee opponents such as general aviation groups. Air ambulances would have been exempt from these fees, but this has been a very hot topic in the general aviation community. The National EMS Memorial, based in Colorado Springs, Colorado, released the names of 26 individuals from 17 states to be honored at the 18th Annual National EMS Memorial Service, which will be held on Saturday, June 26, 2010, at the First Presbyterian Church of Colorado Springs. Since 1992, the National EMS Memorial Service has been honoring America's EMS providers who have given their lives in the light of duty. The 26 individuals being honored this year joined 512 others previously honored. 
At the first service to be held in Colorado Springs, members of the honorees' families will be presented with a medallion symbolizing eternal memory, a U.S. flag which has flown over the nation's capital symbolizing service to the country, and a white rose symbolizing their undying love. In addition to the presentations made during the service, each honoree's name is engraved on a bronze oak leaf, which is added to the National EMS Memorial. Seven of the honorees this year died in air medical crashes. Uncertainty surrounds 20 jobs at the Victorian Essendon Airport's Royal Flying Doctors Services base after a state government decision ended a long-standing contract with the aviation operator. The government announced they will cease supplying engineers and pilots for the air ambulance wing in June 2011. Of the workforce of 32 based there, there are 16 pilots, 3 engineers, and an administrator who face redundancies. Some will be absorbed into other bases and some by the new contractor. With the Royal Flying Doctors cast aside, a new 10-year, 70 million air ambulance contract was awarded to Pell Air, a subsidiary of a regional airline called Rex, which is majority owned by two individuals from Singapore. In August, Ambulance Victoria spokesman James Howe said the contract was given to the best contender. Sam Kennedy, general manager of the Scottish Ambulance Service based in Glasgow, is to face formal investigations by the service after it was reported that he asked crew members of an SAS medical helicopter to fly him home after a meeting. Kennedy was on the island of Barra in the Western Isles for a meeting, but when his return flight to the mainland was delayed, it is alleged he called up the air ambulance helicopter for a lift back to his house. The crew members refused the request and reported the action to their superior, alleging an abuse of power. In an effort to centralize management resources, the air medical management team that directs several air ambulance companies, including Eagle Air Med based in Blanding, Utah, will be relocated to the Salt Lake City area beginning in March of 2010. This move will not affect the day-to-day operations of Eagle Air Med medical operations, but will include moving the Eagle Air Med communication center and management personnel. Eagle Air Med, which has served the Four Corners area for more than 25 years and will maintain its base operations in Blanding. This includes maintenance, business development, equipment and supplies, compliance, and other administrative personnel necessary to continue operations. Photographer David Levine spent eight months with the London Air Ambulance crew and has 16 photographs that were published. Follow the link to the show notes to see this piece from London. The Commission on Accreditation of Medical Transport Systems will conduct the accreditation site visit of the Alberta Shock Trauma Air Rescue Society, or STARS, serving Alberta, Canada, on March 8th through 9th, 2010. STARS has been accredited by CAMES since 1998, and it has flown nearly 19,000 missions since the service began in 1985. Finally, the staff at Community Hospital in Newport, Ritchie, Florida, found a 26-year-old Tarpon Springs man in the cockpit of one of Bayflight's medical helicopters. When security approached the man, he was sitting in the pilot's seat and had deployed a flotation safety device. 
he told officers that he was going to fly to Clearwater. The man is being held at the Landa Lakes Jail on charges of burglary and criminal mischief, and bail was set at $2,650. Remember, this and other news and information can be located by following Air Medical Today on Twitter and becoming a fan on Facebook. The Twitter feed is more comprehensive than the Facebook postings. However, the Twitter feed can also be seen on the Facebook page under the RSS slash blog tab. It may be delayed, however, due to network issues on Facebook. Today I am interviewing Tom Judge, Jason Swiebeck, and Lisa Tofil, the President, Vice President, and Executive Director of the new Association of Critical Care Transport. Tom Judge serves as the Executive Director of LifeLight of Maine, a not-for-profit hospital consortium-based helicopter system serving the entire state of Maine. In addition, he serves as the executive director of the LifeLight Foundation, a nonprofit charitable organization that funds aviation infrastructure and outreach education services to hospitals and EMS providers in Maine. Tom is a practicing paramedic where he has served for over 30 years with the St. George Volunteer Fire Ambulance. Tom's background is in pre-hospital emergency medical services in roles from provider to system planner slash regulator. He is the former board chair of Maine EMS, the state regulatory and licensing agency. He currently serves on the board of the Medevac Foundation International as treasurer and is past president of the Association of Air Medical Services. Tom also serves on the Joint Helicopter Safety Implementation Team, one of the two work groups of the International Helicopter Safety Team. He is a member of the Air Medical Safety Advisory Council and is the 2003 Jim Charlson Award recipient. He is an active professional member of the National Association of EMS Physicians, a faculty member of the National Medical Director's Course and Practicum, and serves on the editorial board of the Emergency Medicine Journal. Tom is a graduate of Beloit College in Beloit, Wisconsin, in English, and received his paramedic training at Kennebec Valley Technical College. He lives with his wife Susan in Port Clyde, Maine, and is serving as the president of ACT. Jason Schwebeck is currently the Assistant Vice President for Carolina's Healthcare Systems Med Center Air Transport Service. He has 17 years' experience in air ambulance transport and previously worked as the Director of the Air Ambulance Department of Providence Medical Center in Anchorage, Alaska. Jason served eight years as a medevac pilot and healthcare administrator in the U.S. Army and for seven years as a combat search and rescue pilot in the United States Air Force, including an assignment with the Alaska Air National Guard as a senior rescue controller. He is the immediate past president of the North Carolina Air Ambulance Affiliation and was the recipient of the 2008 Ames Program Director of the Year. Jason holds a bachelor's degree in biology from the University of Rio Grande, and a master's degree in business and healthcare management from the University of Laverne. He is also a certified medical transport executive. He lives in Charlotte, North Carolina with his wife and two children ages 7 and 10. Lisa Tofel 
is a partner in the Holland and Knight Public Policy and Regulation Group. Her practice is focused on federal regulations and policy in health care, emergency medical services, and transportation issues. Lisa has extensive experience representing state and national healthcare organizations, individual hospital and health systems on health policy matters. Lisa represents a number of healthcare organizations, including trauma centers, hospital and health systems, clinical laboratories, and air medical transport programs. She possesses an in-depth knowledge of Medicaid and Medicare programs and in developing innovative opportunities to enhance state and federal funding for healthcare providers. Lisa spent several years on Capitol Hill as a healthcare legislative assistant to Senator John Chaffee, Republican from Rhode Island, and served on the staff of the House Education and Labor Subcommittee on Labor Management. She has also worked as the government relations representative for Northwestern Memorial Hospital and as the vice president for government relations at Carolinas Healthcare System. In addition to the new association where she serves as executive director, she represents the Trauma Center Association of America, Advocates for EMS, the Safety Net Hospitals for Pharmaceutical Access Association, the Florida Hospital Association, the Clinical Laboratory Management Association, and a variety of health systems and medical groups. Lisa received her Bachelor's of Arts degree from the University of Vermont, and her law degree from Kent College of Law in Chicago, Illinois. She lives in Northern Virginia with her husband, three children, two dogs, and she also has a horse. For full disclosure with this interview, I just wanted to let listeners know that I worked with the Patient First Air Ambulance Alliance while I was at MedServe, but have not been active in the group since August 2009. Welcome, Tom, Jason, and Lisa. I know you were all very busy, and it took some real scheduling magic to get you all on a landline, sitting still for an hour, which I know is difficult for all three of you. So thank you in advance for taking the time to be on the podcast today. And thank you, Ed. We're glad to be able to do this. It's great for the community. Yes, glad to be here. Absolutely. Tom, I know from speaking with you in the past that the issues within the air medical community related to the Airline Deregulation Act, or ADA, were formed really well before the North Carolina CON issue, which, of course, was the legal case by MedTrans Corporation and the subsequent action by the North Carolina Air Medical Programs once the court had overturned the, the denial of the CON by the state of North Carolina. Could you explain, then the genesis of this divergence of views regarding the ADA, and which was really the heart of that case. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think this goes back actually quite some time. The, the use of the ADA by, you know, a small group of provider organizations, um, you know, really, if you think about the Airline Deregulation Act, it was never anticipated to apply to air medicine. It was certainly never anticipated to apply to medicine in any way, shape, or form. So, you know, I think even many years ago, going back five or six years, there's been conversation saying that, you know, use of, use of a law that's an anomaly in law as regards this, this enterprise is really a problem. So if you think about this from kind of the medical system 
you know, point of view, that medical systems are really regulated at the state level. And so that if this is a medical enterprise, and it is a medical enterprise, we would expect, just like hospitals and doctors and nurses and paramedics, that we'd see the regulation, the health care planning, all of those core activities of, of state oversight to be held at the state. And but for this anomaly that we're in an aircraft, um, that we somehow have this diversion of, of that, that, that somehow what should be normal health planning and health law doesn't apply uh, in this field. So is the difference then the interpretation of whether air medical services are an aviation service or a, a medical business? Well, I mean, obviously it's aviation medicine, but if you go back to this from a patient's perspective, that a patient is going to believe when they are in, faced with an emergency, and these patients don't get a choice, a carriage or carrier, that every medical provider is strictly making decisions based on medicine. This has to be a medical enterprise overseen by physicians the practice context is in some ways unique of being in aviation, but really I think the, the, the problem here is not necessarily aviation or medicine, it's business or medicine, and the business of medicine is first, foremost, and always medicine. So when you're looking at this, you're not advocating overturning all of ADA, it's just certain aspects which relate to the medical business. Yeah, it's the, the ADA, the Airline Deregulation Act, is fine for the airlines. You know, people may argue about that, but 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 it it would never anticipated being applied to medical helicopters. And I, I think that it's we need to somehow carve out and get a better understanding of where the appropriate level of oversight for a medical enterprise is, and the appropriate le level of oversight for medicine is at the state health planning, state public health, state public safety authorities. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's go back a little bit. Jason, I know uh, the North Carolina programs were criticized uh, in the air medical community for not working with the Association of Air Medical Services over this CON decision by the state. Why did the North Carolina programs pursue a legislative remedy um, following that lawsuit rather than working through the association itself? Um, a two-part answer to that question, Ed. Um, I guess on the first question about why we did not pursue uh, seeking uh, any advice or going through our trade association, and but back up uh, just prior to that, that you know, an argument could be made that um, to the contrary, that when Medtrans decided to use uh, the Airline Deregulation Act and, and take uh, le um, legal steps to overturn the certificate of need, they they also did not go through uh, our trade association or consult with them as well. So um, I'm not advocating that uh, either side should have gone through the association or not, but mm -hmm. uh, when they filed the lawsuit, they did not consult with Ames, and what we were doing was simply a response uh, to that. Uh, and the second part of your question, Ed, about the, why we chose to do a legislative remedy, I think it's important for everyone to understand and know that when um, the, the air carrier decided and made a decision to use uh, the federal preemption clause of the ADA, 
which knocked down the certificate of need in North Carolina. That uh, our, the response in North Carolina was not initiated initially from the air medical programs. The response to do a legislative remedy was initiated by all of the hospital CEOs and presidents of major tertiary medical centers in the state of North Carolina. Uh, every hospital CEO, uh, president, it's kind of, I, I equate it to a love-hate relationship with the CON. Uh, when, when trauma centers and major hospitals file for CONs and they get what they want or need, they're happy, but when they don't, then they're unhappy with it. But what all of them do agree on uh, and strongly support is the fact that there is a system in place. There is a process to follow for certificate of need. They all agree and feel very strongly about the certificate of need uh, process. So when there's um, an outside entity that is tearing down a certificate of need, uh, a healthcare certificate of need, they take that as a threat to the entire certificate of need process. So they actually, when I say they, the hospital CEOs and presidents actually started this um, legislative remedy actually unbeknownst to the air medical programs because in their eyes it's a lot bigger picture issue of a certificate of need. It was only after that fact that the air medical programs became aware of it and obviously got caught in the middle uh, with our trade association. And you might want to explain too, you know, having worked in North Carolina, uh, the difference between the uh, the state association there and other state associations and how it was formed, because I think that had a a big impact on on that decision by the CEOs. It, it did. You know, North Carolina does not have a state AIMS chapter, but we what we do have is called the NCAA. It's not the basketball team, but it's the North Carolina Air Medical Affiliation, uh, which was really started by the hospital CEOs back in the late 80s when all these flight programs were popping up and around, not only around North Carolina, but around the country. So as they were starting up, uh, the hospital CEOs were very closely engaged to their medical programs. So they formed this affiliation uh, with the purpose in mind of co collaboration with uh, standards, safety, uh, developing uh, uh, a partnership with each other. Mutual aid agreement was a huge part of that affiliation uh, to work together in a cohesive orchestrated system so if one entity couldn't do a flight another one can and would and and created um, and the attempt was to create some strategy with geographic placement of helicopters across the state and I think we enjoy that today uh, uh, it's a, it's one of the most um, I guess uh, functional state air medical groups that have come together um, across the country Lisa this question's for you the the, the Patient First Air Ambulance Alliance was formed after the Air Medical Transport Conference uh, in Minneapolis uh, back in 2008, and it was done specifically to lobby on the ADA bills and later the Snow and Cantwell Amendment to the health care reform legislation. Uh, some in our community say that the ADA legislation isn't really necessary because the states can already regulate medical aspects of air ambulance services. And I guess, please tell us ACT's interpretation of what states can and cannot regulate under ADA and why these bills are important. Sure. I think it really boils down to what someone's definition of medical is. Is it just the care inside the helicopter that can be regulated by the state? 
or does it also encompass the services that are provided pursuant to that care and surrounding that patient as part of the emergency medical services system? I think there are certain things that are clear about what states can do, and it pretty much relates to pieces of care inside the helicopter. Very clearly, supplies, blankets, litters, as provided in in one of the Department of Transportation letters um, to uh, to the state of Hawaii. It's, it's it's pretty clear that there are certain things that states can do. Um, medical qualifications of personnel, things like that. The the question then becomes, you know, at what point do any of those um, regulations related to the care inside the helicopter become economic in nature? And, you know, because the Airline Deregulation Act preempts state regulation of prices, routes, and services, when you start talking about anything that is an air medical service, as if it indirectly, if a state regulation indirectly affects a service, it's preempted by the Airline Deregulation Act. Mm-hmm. So when you look at what's been knocked down, um, whether through Department of Transportation opinions to various different states or litigation, not just North Carolina, but there have been a number of cases out there has really been a confusing and chilling effect on states because there's a hodgepodge of different opinions that have taken place, and it's hard to know exactly beyond pieces of the care inside the helicopter, meaning um, the, the, the supplies, you know, certain things related to the care inside the helicopter, it's not clear how far states can go in that regulation. So, for example, 10 states require climate control. Um, There are many who would argue that climate control is absolutely related to the care of the patient, but it's integral to the aircraft. And so does that get outside of the territory that states can regulate because it's field preempted um, pursuant to FAA authority. So it isn't always as easy as, and simple as states can regulate the care inside the helicopter, therefore they can regulate med- medical. There's much more of an interrelationship between the care that's provided as well as the services that are provided, and, and it's the regulation of the services that are preempted. And, Ed, you know, one other thing that I I think constantly gets lost in all of this is somehow people think that this is about aviation. The ADA is not about aviation. You know, the FAA oversees aviation and will oversee aviation irregardless of any any discussion on on any of these issues. That's absolutely crystal clear and there's no disagreement. Mm -hmm. The issue with the Airline Deregulation Act is about economic regulation, not about aviation regulation. It's about economic regulation, and that's, as Lisa pointed out, is what drives all of this confusion about what's an actual medical service um, for for doing things uh, as opposed to a very limited, narrow version of medical care. One of the things that I think was very telling was in one of the letters from the department to the states, the Department of Transportation said that to the extent that the state wanted to regulate quality, availability, accessibility, and acceptability of air medical services, they're preempted. 
So when you're looking, you know, not just at certificate of need, that's a pretty broad sweeping statement in terms of preemption. So, um, you know, the other thing that, that the department has said along the way in one of these letters was, yep, you can regulate the care inside the helicopter, but be careful, um, I'm paraphrasing, but be careful how far you go because if you go too far, your regulation may constitute economic regulation, which would be preempted by the Airline Deregulation Act. Well, so if that, you know, so if a state wants to require very expensive um, components of equipment on the aircraft or a configuration of the, the aircraft or medical design, um, then at what point, uh, you know, can someone say, no, 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 you've priced me out of the market, that's too expensive, that's economic regulation, even if it is related to the care provided to the patient, it's economic regulation because I can't afford to provide that service. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of confusion. I mean, there's certain things that are clear that states can do, but but it's pretty limited in terms of what's clear. For the, for the most part, I think there's a lot of confusion among the states as to the degree to which they can regulate. And if you look at the various different Department of Transportation letters and the various different cases, um, it, it, it's hard to figure out, even if you're a lawyer sitting there doing it for months, what states can do, let alone um, you know, states trying to understand it. But this is precisely why the opponents of this are are saying that because it creates to them more confusion because each state then can regulate different things. So if you operate in multiple states or across state lines, um, there would be more. But does the legislation make it simpler or more complicated? The legislation creates a very clear box, a sphere in which states can regulate notwithstanding the Airline Deregulation Act. And if a state regulation falls within that sphere, and it's articulated right there in S-848 and H-R 978, if the regulation falls within that protected sphere, then states may regulate in that way notwithstanding the Airline Deregulation Act. If it doesn't, if the regulation by the state doesn't fall within that sphere, the Airline Deregulation Act still still holds. Therefore, example prices are not included in the legislation as a permissible state regulation. So the Airline Deregulation Act would still, under the legislation, be preempted and prohibited. So, and, and Tom, how does that relate? I know, of, I think when you were president of Ames, you were... Uh, working with the state EMS directors to come up with a standardized um, format for what to expect from air medical providers and what types of equipment. How does that fit into this? Well, well, I think that, that you know, and this really goes back and, and, and I think illustrates that the issues around all of this, you know, far preceded the whole case in North Carolina, which is, you know, probably more the tipping point. Um, and and what we were trying to do with the state EMS directors and with physicians, and remember that you know this is a medical enterprise. It's got to have physicians at the heart of it, and 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 with with the air medical you know providers to to try and understand and come to a a set of of uh, you know laid out a set of principles about air medical systems. Got into discussion around this 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 whole 
you know, how would we clarify <clears throat> state authority and what could be done and how would we clean that up, <clears throat> published a paper, um, did all of that work. Well, then the hard work came saying, okay, we need to actually, you know, get this down into the model kinds of cases. And, you know, by and large, the industry um, wasn't willing to do that hard work because there wasn't agreement around uh, around this whole concept of, of economic regulation. And you've got a, a group of people that say, we do not want to have anybody tell us how to operate, where to operate, when to operate, uh, what the standards for operation should be. And so from the, the med air medical community, it, it, it ran to a standstill. And then I, I think that because of that, you end up with this tipping point in North Carolina that just drives, you know, saying that we have to have clarity. I would argue that passage of the legislation, in fact, makes this absolutely more clear. And there's a number of the big air medical operators that are, you know, absolutely, you know, this will make it more clear. This will actually help us operate across state lines. Yeah, that's what I, and my point earlier. I, um because it is confusing, because I know the critics say, some critics say that it, it will make it more confusing, but it seems like if you really define that box, you're, you're making it less confusing and providing the tools to the states to know what to regulate. Right. Tom, on the, uh, the Snow Amendment calls for uh, Medic Medicare accreditation. What specifically does this mean, and why would the air medical community need another accreditation mechanism when we already have... Uh, the Commission on Accreditation of Medical Transport Systems, or or CAMES. Well, I think you're you're talking kind of in in a way of the strategic and the tactic. So, yeah. where where Senator Snow is extremely concerned is 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 looking at um, that how the the play out of air medicine has happened across the country over the last few years very concerned about quality, very concerned about appropriate use, and extremely concerned about safety. So when the NTSB looked at the safety issue of this and said, you know, we can do all kinds of things technically, add technologies, add training, do all those things, and that will help safety, but we'll never get to where we need to be safety unless we address these underlying systemic issues. So what Senator Snow did is looking at the NTSB work said, you know, and, and was already passionate about this issue, said, you know, we need to find a way to make sure. So when the NTSB made recommendations about requirements for participation in Medicare, Senator Snow took up that challenge from the NTSB and said, yes, we need to direct, we need to direct CMS to establish um, you know, the, these, these working points. Now, the way that gets, gets delivered is it may in fact well be CAMES, you know, that CMS could, you know, go through a process and say, yes, it's CAMES. The difference is between a voluntary system and a required system. And from, again, going back to this patient and their family at the heart of the worst day of their life, how do we guarantee that, that 
the, the best system that we can deliver to them. That's a passion of Senator Snow's as deals with health care, and she wants to, to make sure that CMS puts it in. CMS well may hand it to Kames and well may hand it to Kames and, and people and other organizations that could deliver an accreditation. The law enforcement, Airborne Law Enforcement Association, has an accreditation uh, you know, program for doing. HAI is developing an accreditation program. A joint commission obviously has accreditation. So there's people that do accreditation. The issue is trying to guarantee something for the public. The public looks at a helicopter and they see a helicopter. They don't know any difference about how that helicopter is equipped, how it's operated, or, or what the level of medical technology or medical care is inside. Senator Stone wants to make that much more transparent to the public and to patients in need. Well, you answered my next question because I was going to ask whether, you know, Kames could just fulfill that role like uh, the Joint Commission does for hospital accreditation. So, Absolutely. Yeah, okay. Lisa, I know a concern expressed about establishing uh, this additional accreditation is that it would be an unfunded mandate and add considerably to the cost of their medical providers. What is the, the association's stance on this, and what chance would there be to actually have higher reimbursement, uh, both from government and other third-party payers, if a program was compliant with these um, higher standards? Um, well, I guess the first thing that I would say is going back to what NTSB said in September. Mm -hmm. And the NTSB recommended um, that CMS first evaluate HEMS reimbursement to determine if rates should differ according to the level of safety provided and establish a new reimbursement structure if necessary. That's the first thing they said. And then the second thing they said was uh, to establish Medicare accreditation standards for HEMS that augment Part 135 and only reimburse those providers that comply with those requirements. ACT agrees with the NTSB recommendations, and it makes perfect sense for CMS to, to do the evaluation that NTSB has called for. You know, I will say that the environment on Capitol Hill right now is pretty tough, um, given the fiscal pressures. And um, so, you know, establishing higher rates of reimbursement uh, in this fiscal environment is, is pretty challenging, but I think it's important for CMS to go through that evaluation. I, I know there's thoughts or you hear things out in the community, you know, would there still be a role for single-engine helicopters that do not fly IFR or have autopilots? I mean, I think that needs to come over a transition period. I mean, you can't just overnight shift the, the fleet. Mm -hmm. And that's never been any anybody's expectation. Um, those who have been supporters of the Snow Amendment or sponsors, I mean, it's just never been their expectation. But over a period of time, you want to ensure that the highest level of safety is provided by all air medical providers. And uh, how long it takes to get there is, is something that will be, you know, certainly much discussed. Um, but over a period of time, a reasonable period of time, I think we need to set the goal high in terms of where we're going to in order to provide the highest level of safety. If you don't set a high goal, and the highest goal, how are you ever going to get there? Mm -hmm. so the, other, the other point that, that the NTSB never said anything about single-engine or twin-engine helicopters. The NTSB's reference to autopilots, and they, they actually made this quite clear at AMTC, is that there actually is new technology coming into the market 
that is an autopilot that could be retrofit to, to really virtually any helicopter. And the idea is to give a pilot, and Jason can probably speak closely to the, most closely to this as a pilot, to give a, give a pilot added um, protection and added uh, help when, it, when faced with workload. So there's nothing in the NTSB has said, nor is there anything in what Senator Snow has said, nor is there anything in what Senator Snow or McCaskill have said that says that you're going to outlaw uh, you know that anyone's going to, to to do you know something with single engine helicopters. Mm-hmm. So that's that's another big misnomer that people looked at it and said, oh, we can't put an autopilot on a single engine helicopter. Well, that's actually new technology is saying that's actually not the case. Yeah, I think that's it, out there precisely because of that. They imply or infer from that, and same with IFR. Right. I know a number of air medical providers are experiencing, you know, loss of volume and facing operational and financial challenges, especially with the economy. Um, what do you believe would be the effect of both the ADA legislation and the the uh, Snow Cantwell Amendment on the ability of air medical providers to meet the needs of patients, and especially in underserved rural areas? Uh- From my standpoint, Tom, and let me take this one first, and and Jason and Lisa can weigh in, I don't think there's any effect of this legislation on on either of these. In fact, Mm. um, you know, the the Snow Amendment is is really um, calling out very specifically things around, you know, protecting rural uh, communities and and protecting access in rural communities. Um, A more organized system um, will actually, I think, financially help anybody. So, passage of these, you know, this legislation, if, you know, as it moved forward, I think in the end would actually stabilize uh, markets and help people financially. Um, it's when everyone is trying, if you think about this, there's not, in, this isn't, you know, uh, United Airlines or, you know, flying to some destination. You have to have a patient that has need and patients either have need or they don't have need. If they have need, that's a, that's a population, you know, a cohort within a generalized population. You can't create those. We've, we've seen medical necessity, um, acuity come down in air medicine. That's not a good use of an expensive healthcare resource. Uh, on the other, you know, but the other hand, so there's absolute need in a population. Organizing the marketplace would actually stabilize everyone economically. So I look at it and say this is actually would be quite beneficial um, to the to to the predictability for everyone um, that's that's in the, that's uh, provided in the enterprise. Mm-hmm. Jason, I probably should have asked this question a little bit earlier, but um, when we were talking about the state EMS directors, uh, and I know they're uh, in support of um, what the association is doing. Could you explain why this is, and and with the implementation of these changes, um, would you have a more integrated EMS system um, with, again, many of the air medical providers going across state lines and having to comply with state regulation? Oh, absolutely. I, I do think um, having a more integrated system um, uh, is definitely beneficial. The, I think the state EMS directors are very supportive of, of our association uh, with ACT because, uh, you know, first and foremost, uh, they, just like us, believe that uh, an air ambulance uh, has the word ambulance in it. 
Uh, it's a key component to an integrated healthcare transport system, and it's part of state health care planning, uh, especially when it comes to trauma services uh, and other uh, aspects of, of patient movement across the state. You know, and in a lot of states, the health care planning and for emergency services delegated down to the county level, uh, and so, some are not. But, you know, it's really... Um, you know, it's a matter of licensure, regulation, making sure there's an overall arching uh, authority and agency looking at standards and integrating. Like Tom said earlier, you know, it, it's just the, uh, the means of moving the patient. That doesn't stop uh, the need that's out there. If there's a patient to be moved from point A to point B, uh, that patient uh, can be moved uh, by medical direction, uh, by ground ambulance, by fixed-wing air ambulance, uh, helicopter air ambulance, or in some cases, boat ambulance. You know, it's uh, how you, that just because one mode of transport can't do it, that doesn't stop the need to move the patient, especially if there's poor weather, aircraft or truck is broken, there's still a need there. And so to um, have the ability of a state to, to regulate that sort of world uh, is key, and that's, uh, that's probably why they're behind it. Okay. Yeah, I, I think another aspect, and I know, Tom, what you've – we're dealing this, dealing with this again. Back when you were president, is many of the state EMS directors were very frustrated about controlling the unfettered growth of our medical programs. And um, you know, will not the marketplace solve in the end the geographic areas where some say there are you know too many medical providers? And you know, in the U.S., there's always been this huge tug. And pull between government regulation and free enterprise, and you know we only have to look for at for-profit and not-for-profit hospitals or states with CON and those without. And so, how and why are air medical services uh, and providers different? Well, if 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 the market worked in healthcare, we wouldn't have 52 million people uninsured in the United States. I mean, the the problem with markets is always there's going to be winners and losers. We wouldn't have communities that had physicians and communities that don't have physicians. We wouldn't have, you know, rural hospitals closing. We wouldn't have uh, people who live in inner cities that can't get access to care, um, can't find a physician. Um, you know, so if a market worked, you know, in healthcare, wouldn't this all look different? So I, I think that the, you know, the, um, the reliance on a market and what we've seen is you can actually pretty much track growth in medical helicopters, and it's tied, you know, almost specifically state by state to where you've seen an increase in Medicaid reimbursement, a substantial increase Medicaid reimbursement will draw in helicopters. So the helicopters are following the availability. I mean, if people are in business, um, you know, from a business enterprise, they're going to follow the availability of funding and, and, and reimbursement. And so you'll have it. So you can even go in individual states. And I think this is the, the, the very big frustration at the state EMS director level, that you can go in states and find an area where there's helicopters, you know, literally adjacent hangars arguing about who's closest to a scene call and other areas of the state that have no no access to helicopters at all. Mm -hmm. And those are those are not medical decisions. Those are decisions being made, you know, on a for a business um, level. So 
you know, and if you and I, I think a lot of state directors have looked at this and actually have said, you know, when we've added all these helicopters, have we actually decreased, you know, the number of people who can't get to care in a timely way? And in fact, we found, you know, using Adams data and NHTSA data, that there's no good correlation um, between the number of helicopters, how they're placed, do we cover a population, and there's, there's states that have had doubled and tripled the number of helicopters, and that the amount of the numbers of people that can actually get to tertiary care in a timely way has almost unchanged. So from a state you know, if you're if you're a state health official, public safety official, and your job is to protect the public, protect the public's interest in a healthcare system, you need to have a way that you can manage this just as you manage ground EMS. And you know, to Jason's earlier point, every single day of the week, the ground ambulances cross state lines left and right. I mean, it happens all over. There's not crossing state lines isn't a mystery to anybody in EMS. Yeah, and to follow on to that, I think to go back to the original North Carolina case when when this first started, uh, mutual aid is is a phrase and a term well known in, in the ground ambulance industry and has been for for many many years. And a lot of air medical programs participate in mutual aid programs as well. Uh, but when this case first started uh, before, during the lawsuit, uh, during the mitigation process of it, uh, mutual aid was offered, and it was discussed, but it was declined um, by the plaintiffs, and it was declined, and it was offered and declined on three separate occasions, and it was uh, all or nothing was kind of the stance. Mm. Um, but yes, air ambulances like ground ambulances cross state borders all the time, and they, they have the ability to do that, but it's... Um, it can be challenging when it's offered up and, and declined just pure for business reasons. Well, I think what you said too, Tom, I mean, if you just look at, you know, healthcare reform legislation, it seems like we're quite stalled now with the, uh, what happened in Massachusetts because we don't, the, the Democrats don't have the uh, filibuster proof uh, majority, but, you know, air medical is kind of a microcosm of the whole healthcare system. And you have some powerful interests that don't want to change that. And, and you're right. We still have how many people without insurance? So how, how, can, how can we change this part of it? Well, and, and I think that that goes to, to in many ways, um, you know, and, and, and there'll be continued work done. You know, people have focused in and said, you know, here's, you know, a couple different legislative initiatives. There's lots of work that's going to have to go forward. I mean, you know, one of the downsides of health care reform not passing is that on January 1st, reimbursement for all ambulance services dropped um, because it, they, it had been increased on an extension with CMS. And so as of January 1st, every air ambulance, every right. ground ambulance, is reimbursement has gone down um, in rural areas fairly significantly. So we, there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. The question comes back to, you know, can the marketplace in and of itself, an unregulated market, um, deliver health care to the entire population in some sort of efficient and affordable and quality way? I think there's a lot of people. I know that Senator Snow um, is in actually everyone from Maine, but they're passionate about this. And, and I think the legislation wasn't ready. You know, the, the health care reform needed more work, and it's going to get more work. Um, but uh, this is... This, these are much larger issues than 
than what's you know being talked about in the air medical community. And the air medical community really quite they they need to pay attention to the much broader issues involved here. Mm-hmm. Well, let's switch switch over to safety. Um, I know safety plays a large uh, role in the initiatives for ACT, um, and I know also. Uh, the Air Medical Operators Association's uh, founding principles is safety. So how are the two organizations' definitions different, and how do the current incentives and disincentives play into that difference? Uh, and actually, on this question, Ed, I, I don't think uh, that our respective associations are all that different uh, at all. I think this mm-hmm. is definitely an area that we have some common ground uh, with it, um, but to back up one second, I think, you know, one of the founding principles of the MO, and I'm not part of it, but uh, it, uh, and this is just Jason's opinion, but I think the uh, ironic thing was that the MOA Association started up right during the time of all this, in the heat of the, um, of the battle, if you will, um, on the legislation and forming up. So I think, you know, it, it was a good opportunity for that group that was um, meeting uh, anyway, you know, the, the hospital or the, um, the operator CEO group, uh, meeting together to discuss safety issues and some other issues. It was a good opportunity to get together to basically band together and, and fight the legislation that we were trying to enact. Um, so, you know, with that being said, I think some of the safety initiatives that both of our associations can uh, agree on are, are several. But I do think AMOA, you know, with their aviation-focused uh, um, uh, mission and vision, uh, it, it focuses on things like pilot fatigue, night vision goggle technology, uh, IFR training, et cetera, et cetera. And, and we definitely um, encourage that and, and would definitely support that. But um, you know, I think things like uh, ACT can can supplement that would be uh, – and a good example would be in North Carolina in the uh, licensure part it used to have in there a light on the tail rotor of the helicopter that illuminates it at night. But, and that actually, unfortunately, not only when our CON was dismantled, uh, the, the, the plaintiffs didn't stop there. It wasn't just the CON that got dismantled in North Carolina. It was also a large chunk of state licensure as well. And one of the licensure requirements was this tail light uh, uh, rotor illumination. And, you know, that wasn't in there just so healthcare planners can throw it in there uh, to knock people out of the market or maybe it might be too expensive or not. It's truly a safety initiative uh, and desire there to illuminate that tail rotor so primary responders and first responders don't inadvertently walk into the tail rotor, come close to it, drive into it. So it wasn't just for the safety of the flight crew, it's the safety of the ground first responders as well, mm-hmm. and obviously the patient as well. So I think, you know, where ACT can, can supplement some of the safety initiatives that from a MO would be in, in cases like that. But it is very unfortunate that what happened uh, in our state was the, the dismantling of not only the CON, but the state uh, licensure requirements like things like this. Yeah, this is Lisa. I guess if I can, I would just add a couple of things. One, with regard to tail rotor illumination, I believe it was in about 2001 that there was um, a hospital worker who was killed on a helipad as a result of walking into the tail rotor um, at night. And um, and so certainly this particular regulation within the state of North Carolina went to protecting that 
that kind of occurrence from happening again. Um, and just to build on what Jason was saying in terms of a number of regulations within North Carolina um, that were dismantled as a result of the MedTrans litigation. Um, beyond certificate of need, defined service areas, 24-7 availability, um, and uh, integration with, with emergency medical services in terms of having um, a valid EMS provider license, EMS peer review, and um, uh, and participation in the EMS system. Um, you know, there were comp components of those requirements that, that were taken down as part of that litigation as well. Okay. And, the, and the court said that the court was loath to do that aspect of it um, and to dismantle those laws, but didn't have a choice under the Airline Deregulation Act. The other thing I think that's really important is that if you think about this, that I, I think one of the distinguishing features is, you know, and you'll remember, you know, that, that I was president of Ames. And as president of Ames, and, and I truly believed at the time, back in the first run-up, when we were sitting there in 2003, 2004, where we, we began to see this dramatic increase in accidents, um, that, that, you know, I was, the industry was voluntarily going to do all this good work. Well, I was wrong. The industry voluntarily didn't do all the good work necessary. Now, there's a lot more focus, there's a lot more pressure, and the industry is doing a lot of good work across operators across the community are doing good work. Programs are doing good work. But what I think one of the distinguishing pieces is does voluntary in and of itself work? And I would argue that voluntary uh, is not enough. And so an act from the standpoints of, you know, from PFAA and into the merging of act is, is really on this, this very clear on this issue that you have to have some guarantee for the public and you have to have a guarantee for patients of what all of this in quality, safety, care, and services is all about. Mm -hmm. Let's uh, move on to the, the association itself. Um, I know, Jason, I think you mentioned, you know, Mo was formed, and I believe that was about a, a year ago during all this. But PFA was really formed as an informal coalition rather than an association. Why is there a need now for an association, and how is ACT different um, from AIMS or AMOA? Uh, well, I'll, I'll start on this, and then, then Tom and Lisa can, can weigh in here. But I think uh, you know, where we we got a lot of ground was uh, at the, not just last AMTC, but the one prior. You know, when this was getting started up, um, we started this through the not-for-profits, not-for-profit special interest group within Ames, um, thinking being like-minded uh, providers across the country typically at that time were part of the not-for-profit special interest group. So that's kind of where it got its legs and, you know, come to find out that, yes, there are um, many, 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 many programs across the country uh, like us who uh, were in a similar situation, uh, were in, have been, had their CONs knocked down, their state air medical legislation knocked down, uh, or were in a situation that it was pending or uh, it, it was in their future. And so, you know, gathering the group together, there was a huge, huge 
need for this uh, that that we seem to be underrepresented. So we we started from there with the not-for-profit SIG, and that kind of grew uh, legs uh, eventually, and then uh, went to the uh, not-for-profit Air Ambulance Association, and then uh, obviously there were more entities that believed in our cause, believed in our mission and our values, and but we're not necessarily not-for-profit, so we changed the name to the Patient First Air Ambulance Association since that was the founding principle, was looking at it from a patient's perspective. Um, and then from there, um, uh, kept on growing legs until we are today with the uh, Act for Patients Association. But Tom or Lisa can fill in yeah, the gaps I, I left out. Sure, and, and I think the you know that if you think of this widely, that you know Ames is a business trade association. We're members of Ames. You know, Life Flight of Ames, a member of Ames. We we need a business trade association. The air medical operators, you know, are the air medical operators. I mean, it's 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 uh, you know they have a very specific focus, uh, you know, around aviation. There really isn't anybody in the enterprise. You know, you've got professional associations that are that are looking at this from a physician, a nursing, a pilot, a paramedic, a community specific. But there really is no one in the enterprise that's looking at the big picture and says, from a patient's perspective. What does the system look like, and how are we going to get to where where a system, you know, that we can really trust and be assured of and the public can trust and be assured of? How do we get there? And I, I think the more we time we spent, and we started with a fairly narrow focus, but, you know, parts of it, you know, I'd be quite frank, we're like peeling an onion. And the more you peeled it, you know, it just made you cry that, um, you know, and as we began to look around the country and just – you know, when you started peeling this back and seeing the kind of of decision-making that's being driven by business rather than medicine, that's being d- driven by competition rather than safety, that as we peeled that back, it was just like an onion. And I think all of us concluded that, that there's a, uh, a big piece of work that needs to be done, and the only way to do that is to have a formalized structure um, that gathers people together with, that have a common interest, and in this case, it's the interest of a medical system and patients, um, and and works those issues um, forward. That there's you know issues around the ADA, but there's issues around never events. There's issues around you know how does this work in, in integration. So it's it's the wider look that I think drives the need for an association. And and I understand that because you're you're not saying that it's a replacement for Ames or a, a trade association, but then how, with so many different associations, and I'm not talking about the professional societies because I think um, people have worked together, although that's been an issue in the past too, but how, how do we achieve one voice for the aeromedical community, and can all the associations work together to do that? Well, I think my, my own take, and I'll let Lisa and, and Jason weigh in, is my, my own take is we're not going to have one voice. I think there's, there's the, the business interest and the medical interest are so divergent at this point that we are not going to have one voice on, on at least some, of, some very core issues. Mm. There's, there's plenty of places where there's, there's wide, easy um, agreement, um, totally different, different setup. But in 
this I, I'm not and I, and I don't and I don't think that I don't think people should look at that as a bad thing. We should find the areas where there's common interest and 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 common you know beliefs and work forward. And where there's not, we we need to to work individually. And and so I, I don't think that it's I don't look at it as a bad thing. I think it's it's part of the maturity of 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 thinking in the enterprise. Um, but I'm not certain that we can have one voice. Um, and, you know, and as a former president of Ames, I believe that. And, again, I think, you know, that, um, you know, overtaken by events here. Okay. Lisa, I know from reading your extensive uh, bio that you have worked with a lot of other health care um, areas, trauma, um, and, and other industries, is it common to have multiple associations? And, I, and I, I'm not talking about the ones Tom was referring to, such as the what I call the societies or physicians, nurses, you know, paramedics, pilots, communication specialists, but actual trade groups where the members are uh, the organization. Um, absolutely. It's much more common than the other way around. Um, I guess I would take the hospital industry um, as the best example and the one with which I'm most familiar as a hospital lawyer and lobbyist by training. Um, you have the American Hospital Association, which represents the broad interests of 5,000 plus hospitals in this country. And the AHA very capably advocates and, and provides services to all of its members on a variety of different issues and topics, but it's, it's very broad in nature and scope as it should be for, for its uh, large membership. But you also have, in addition to the American Hospital Association, the Association of um, American Medical Colleges, which represents the teaching hospitals. And on Capitol Hill in Washington, they focus on teaching hospital issues, graduate medical education, things like that. Um, NIH, you know, things that are very specific to academic medical centers. Then you have the National Association of Public Hospitals. And they represent the large public and safety net hospitals across the country. And there's a National Association of Children's Hospitals, um, and they focus on both the freestanding children's hospitals as well as children's hospitals that are part of larger systems, but their issues are specifically focused on kids. Um, and there's a set of issues that they worry about that others don't worry about. Um, then you have the for-profit hospitals, um, the, the National Federation. And so, you know, all, all of those associations band together on certain issues where there's great commonality um, on large big picture issues. But there are other areas where they're specifically focused on the interests of their members or what it is that they're seeking to achieve. That's so. So then what... What is the mission of ACT, and what is the vision for Air Medical Services 10 years from now? We have a, a vision, mission, values, and policy platform statement um, that uh, PFAA transitioning to ACT spent a lot of time developing and thinking through very, mm. very carefully. And the, the vision is a reliable and accountable critical care transport system that's driven by quality, safety, and value for patients and fully integrated within the broader EMS and healthcare system. 
in terms of um, the mission of the organization, it's to transform existing critical care transport operations into an integrated, accountable, patient-centered, and continually improving system, both for ground and air critical care transport, um, and that's characterized by quality, safety, um, and value that's worthy of the public trust. And I think that the public trust is a very, very important component of what ACT is all about. Um, critical values for the organization, accountability, quality, safety, value, integration. You'll see them repeatedly through all of what ACT is working on because those are, those are the core values that are driving everything that ACT is, ACT is doing, not just in terms of legislation, which is, I think, what people are most familiar with, with the ADA legislation and the SNOW Amendment, but there's a lot of other work that's going on within ACT around quality, safety, and um, and so, you know, those are, the, those are the, the focuses of the organization. Okay. Right. And, and to, to kind of um, supplement that, you know, what to, and also to reiterate what Tom said earlier about patients uh, that are the true customers of air medical services, they don't have a choice of carriage or carrier. They're not shopping around when they're unconscious or, or lying or in a hospital bed somewhere need to be transferred. Uh, they do rely on medical caregivers to coordinate uh, the transport of their patient, uh, and the public needs to have trust in the fact that who's coming to pick them up is licensed appropriately, is trained correctly, meets minimum standards, et cetera, et cetera. Um, one of the best analogies I, I've used uh, over this past several months, it comes actually from our healthcare system CEO, uh, whereas to, to draw an analogy that, you know, from a business enterprise perspective versus healthcare that, you know, I, I could go out and um, make pharmaceuticals, make some drugs in my bathtub at my house and, and sell them on the open market. And why would I want to do that? Well, you know, I could probably make a lot of money doing that. But, you know, what's going to happen uh, if I do that? People more than likely will be injured and some may die. And it's a high-risk venture, and so no, I can't do that today because it's highly regulated. And we feel strongly, strongly that this industry is the same. It's a very high-risk industry. People die from it, and it needs to be regulated. One of the things that I think is important also to note in terms of our organizational structure is that um, is that ACT is is not a trade association. It is a 501c4 social welfare organization. So its mission is um, is different. It's it's not designed to represent the best interests of the trade or the business. It's designed to be a social welfare organization that's advocating um, in a variety of different contexts and working for what's the best interest of the patients in air and ground critical care transport. Well, I had that question because I, I was wondering whether the association was setting up as a 501c3. So how, do, how does that differ then? And then who who are the members then? Is it is it an organization that's a member? Can an individual be a member? Um, there are several different categories of membership. Um, regular members are ground or critical care transport programs. Um, there are also members who are associate members who are business organizations 
with an interest in promoting the vision, mission, and, and values and goals of ACT, mm-hmm. affiliate members um, that are other associations that have similar philosophies and are working toward the same aim um, as ACT, and then individual members are able to join. And um, we're working on our website. It isn't up yet, but it will be soon. And um, and we certainly have information that will be available via the website, but also um, you could contact any one of us and we can send membership information to anyone who's interested in joining. Do you have the prices set on what the various levels are? We do. For uh, transport programs, the membership fee is $500, and then there's an amount per vehicle. So the additional amount per vehicle per helicopter is $750, and per fixed-wing aircraft is $500. And ground-critical care vehicle is $250. And uh, there are two different levels of associate membership one at $2,000 and one at $10,000. And then affiliate members, which are other associations, um, would be at $500, and individuals um, are at $100. What's the difference between the 2000 and 10000 membership? Um, it really has to do with the size of the organization. I so, um, you know, 2000 is for companies with gross earnings that are less than $5 million a year and a higher level with added benefits for those that are much larger than that. And, and, and this is all going to be on the new website. Are you going to be forwarding over the current uh, Patient First website to the new website address? And can you announce what that new address is going to be yet? Yes, um, it will be actforpatients.org, so acctforpatients.org, and we will be making the transition to the new website. It's in process, and um, and there, I'm I'm not the technology technological person, um, but um, the, the people who know how to do that will be doing that. Um, but we'll keep the PFAA website up for a while while we're continuing to complete the transition, and then eventually we'll all move over to the ACT, new ACT website. And your Facebook page, too. Right? And the Facebook page. You know, Ed, I'm, I'm sure we're, we're, you know, you've been very kind, um, you know, with time, and, and we really appreciate the opportunity to, to kind of share this with this community. And obviously, anybody can find us, and I think you've got contacts on, you know, through your, your, your podcast system um, for that, for further information. But I, to go back to, to, to a question you asked just a little bit ago, what, you know, what do you see out in 10 years from now? Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, that's actually really important. And there was a lot of discussion out in San Jose, and, you know, the patient first group came together. There was a lot of interested people. And, and someone, you know, said, look, you know, this, this is what I, you know, I want to see my organization. Uh, we're doing good work for people. We're, we're, we're important to our community. I want to make, you know, I want to be part of an organization that's, that's going to share my values, help me succeed um, in, in, in what, what we're trying to do, you know, in our organization for, for our patients. And I, I, 10 years from now, I think the ear medicine is going to be a more integral part of healthcare. Um, hopefully, it's going to be much more integrated. Um, there's going to be lots more technology, technologies that, that we don't, um, you know, 
uh, at the Medevac Foundation International, we're, we're funding studies that, you know, would just kind of knock people's socks off of like, this is medical technology. This, this looks like, you know, Star Wars technology, and, and yet this is coming. So I think this is going to be vibrant. Um, it's going to be higher quality. It's going to have to be higher quality. Um, it's going to have to be trustworthy. Um, and, and uh, you know, so we, I think there's a great future uh, and a great need for air medicine. We're passionate. We're all passionate about the, about the need, but within a better health care system, and we're committed to a better health care system. Well, I'll uh, leave it at that. I just wanted to give one more opportunity because our time is running short now. Uh, anything else that uh, you want to say about the association? Growing and, you know, and, um, uh, you know, lots of, you know, I, I think that, that it's, it's a place where people can come together around the, the issues of values and standards and, um, and you know, together, you know, and with the other associations, with Ames, with Amoa, with Kames, with everybody, um, we'll, we'll, we'll create a better future, um, but it will definitely create a better future for patients. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, guys, thanks again for being on the podcast, and the, the best to you as you continue the development of uh, ACCT, or ACT, as you uh, call it. Let's uh, stay in touch, and I would love to have you back on the show in the future. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ed. I had mixed this podcast Friday uh, night to be posted up this morning, but woke up to some terrible news out of New Mexico that needed to be included. The three-member crew of a Southwest Medevac helicopter died when their aircraft crashed during a training flight at McGregor Range. Officials from OmniFlight said in a news release this morning that the helicopter's pilot and two paramedics were fatally injured when it crashed as it approached a landing zone on Friday night. The helicopter was not transporting a patient at the time. Officials from the company are at the crash site, and the National Transportation Safety Board and the FAA have been notified. Further details, including the names of those who died, have not been released as of Saturday morning. And I will have more on this story in the podcast next week. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Air Medical Today podcast. Please come back again and also subscribe to future shows by visiting the website at airmedtoday.com or on iTunes. Information about the Facebook group and Twitter account can also be found at the website. Remember, if you would like to become a sponsor and or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 206-350-0278. Special thanks to Stanley Reeves of Room Tunes for providing his song, Track 5, for use as the theme song of the podcast. Stan's work can be found at RoomTuneEnterprise.com. Please continue to keep the citizens of Haiti, the victims of the earthquake, and all the volunteers in your thoughts and prayers, and also the family, friends, and colleagues of the Southwest Medevac Transport Team lost Friday night. Until the next episode, take care and fly safe.